What is up? I am your host, Zoe. This is episode five on growing up in dysfunction slash Al-Anon on the Mind on Recovery podcast. And I have a gas bubble in my abdomen that won't quit. But anyway, my guest is Miss D, as I call her. Her name is actually Denise. Um, and she is one of my older friends in recovery. And I only say older because she has a wealth of wisdom and knowledge um that's afforded to one that makes it that far in life so it's 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 not a negative thing i don't say that as a negative it's absolutely a positive and something that should be celebrated more often i think but anyway i think it helps us with this episode's topic and the lady can tell a story or two i don't i don't know why i never knew this before we recorded this podcast, but yeah, some interesting stuff in there. I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, here is episode five with Miss D on the Mind on Recovery podcast. I'm your host, Zoe, and I'm here with my guest star for the week, Miss, I call her Miss D, uh, also known as Denise. Yay! Hi, Zoe. How you doing? Good. Good. Uh, I've been at Miss D's house for a minute. We just had brunch, or I had brunch. She made brunch, and (laughs) it was off the hook. Um, But before we get into our topic of the day, which is going to kind of be a... a mix of things, all right? Uh, let's hit a, a positive news story. All right, so I found one, just to keep it short and sweet. This one has to do with COVID, but not in a way that one might think automatically. And if this advertisement will get off my phone, okay. Luxury Mexican hotel chain, Velas Resorts, thanks 100 healthcare heroes with all-inclusive vacations. Boom. That's wonderful. Right? Uh, It reads, These days, heroes come with face masks instead of capes, but a luxury resort chain in Mexico has rewarded 100 healthcare superheroes with free spa vacations to say thank you for their great hearts during the worldwide pandemic. Oh, that's beautiful. That is, that is. During April, the public voted for their favorite stories among 350 nominations, choosing who would get the chance to uh, for an all-inclusive stay of four days and three nights with food and drinks prepared by its premier chefs and restaurants. Yeah, that's a good... That's, that's, that's a very good thing. Right. Anybody that works in the, in the industry out there, I feel, needs to always be praised. I don't think we praise them enough. Right. Them, along with teachers, along with... Yeah. Our civil servants. Yes. Absolutely. And I'm glad a company, corporation at that was able to do something. Yeah, give up their money to help somebody else. Instead of worrying about the bottom line. Yeah. You know, it's all about the bottom line. All right. That was our positive news story. And just one story because we're going to, I want to give these topics um, their, their, pop, their proper breathing room. Because generally we're talking about Al-Anon, what that is. But from that, I kind of also wanted to go into inter mm, generational trauma, also called intergenerational trauma, uh, and just growing up in 
dysfunction and what that what that comes with. So first, uh, we're going to give our definition. Well, not our definition, but the definition of Al-Anon. Um, Al-Anon is a worldwide fellowship founded in 1951. Uh that offers a program of recovery for the families and friends of alcoholics, whether or not the alcoholic recognizes the existence of a drinking problem or seeks help. They also have Alteen. I don't know if you knew. Uh, that is a part of the Al-Anon Fellowship designed for the younger relatives and friends of alcoholics through the teen years. So that was from Wikipedia, Al-Anon. I've always heard Al-Anon while I've been in the rooms, but I've never went to an actual meeting yet. I want I I want to go. Well, I I went to um I went to a few, and um they're very helpful for me because going to AA meetings helps me identify what's happening with me, mm-hmm. but going to Al-Anon um, helps me deal with the all the alcohol that um was in my family growing up. Yeah. So that. And it makes me understand more about me and the choices that I make. That's a good point. I like how you contrasted the two uh, AA versus Al-Anon. Um, okay, that was Al-Anon. And now, interger- uh, I'm a trip on this word the entire episode. Intergenerational trauma. This uh, definition, also called transgenerational trauma, is a psychological term which asserts that trauma can be transferred in between generations. After a first generation of survivors experience trauma, they are able to transfer their trauma to their children and further generations of offspring via complex post-traumatic stress disorder mechanisms. This field of research is relatively young but has expanded in recent years. Critics describe the concept of biologically inherited trauma as implausible or non-existent since no mechanism for a process has been identified that the studies which claim to support it rely on small samples and flawed method- method- methodology. Okay, <laughs> so that was a lot. The last one, the, the critics, uh, they were kind of poo-pooing on the biologically inherited trauma, but... I don't know. To me, it's not. I'm, I wasn't even thinking about the biologically inherited trauma. Like, oh, my grandma had anxiety. Now my mom has anxiety. Like, we got it through our genetics. I was thinking of more of it. Like, and this is purely example. My grandmother had anxiety and didn't know what to do with it. She transferred, and then from that, my mom watched my grandmother not knowing how to deal with that anxiety and then boom i watched my mom not know how to deal with you know yes rather than it just being in my blood yes did what but i do believe that alcoholism is related in your blood or they wouldn't take blood tests to see if you have genes yeah right 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 yes there's still a lot of work to be done on that i mean there's still a lot of skepticism on that hold that thought we're going to get more into that when we come back. As we come back, we're going to go a little bit deeper into our own personal experiences with intergenerational trauma and all that good stuff. Stay tuned. Hello, me again. If you would like more info on Al-Anon or Al-Teen, the program for teenagers, uh, please visit their website. They do have one and they have uh, a plethora of information that we couldn't even begin to 
fully covering this episode. So yeah, check it out. Thanks. All right, and we're back to the Mind on Recovery podcast. Uh, I am here with my guest, Ms. D, also known as Denise. Uh, and we're talking about intergenerational trauma or just growing up in dysfunction. Okay, so I'll go with my personal experiences first, dealing with intergenerational trauma. I don't know, without going too deep, I'm trying to see where that big phrase or that big term fits with my family, seeing different uncles and aunts having their addiction issues. I don't, that's because I don't know how my grandparents' generation dealt with alcoholism and drug addiction. I don't know if it was even as prevalent back then on a small little island in the Pacific, South Pacific. Sure. Um, but I know with my mom's generation, the one above me, it seemed as if they didn't know exactly what to do or or maybe there wasn't treatments available for them that there are for us right now. Um, uh, my earliest memories of alcohol and drugs in the family was definitely my grandparents telling my uncle, you drink too much, you drink too much, you know, you need to stop drinking, that whole thing over and over again. But I was a kid, so I really didn't put too much into it until later. Um, but that was the earliest thing I could remember. Um, and then as time progressed, I got older, they got older, their addictions got worse, bodies started breaking down. Um, and yeah, we've seen the toll from that. But they, it seemed like they weren't looking for help. Kind of like you were saying earlier about choice. It seemed like they were perfectly, maybe not perfectly, but they were content in the choices that they made that they were going to drink every single day. Because they didn't feel it was a problem. Yeah. See, when you don't know what you're doing is a problem and it's familiar everywhere that you are, it's kind of hard to get help. Right, right, right. Maybe you're not seeing how much it's affecting their kids, my cousins, or their parents, my grandparents, great aunts. Um, yeah, it just seemed like they were perfectly content with just using every day. Like it was okay. Um, well, that's a true addict because they don't feel like they're doing nothing wrong. Right. They don't feel like they're hurting anybody. And they don't feel like they have a problem. So right. um, Why stop? The more somebody mentions that they have a problem, the more they defy it. Yeah. And um, it's sad, but... Um, once again, decisions. You have to make that decision. Right. You know? Yeah. Especially if you have children. Because things are generational. And you have to not be selfish enough to ask yourself, what is your child seeing? And what is he going to think is normal? Right. Right, right, right. Because now my cousin uh, is also... who Who's like a few years younger than me. He's also very much into... The drugs and getting high and I can only guess that he's just gathered that from watching his father all those years and then for his father my uncle to tragically pass away from it you know like having their livers shut down or something to that effect yeah that was just like a kick in the a kick in the gut so going back to what you're saying like my cousin seeing that this must be normal 
activity. He just, he doesn't see it that way. It, right. it's, it's, if, if the death of his father yeah. didn't give him like a wake up call, right. nobody should have had to see say anything. He knew the cause of death, mm-hmm. and he knew what he was doing. A, a normal person would get scared, yeah, and change their wage or at least ask for help because they're scared. They don't want to die, and they're doing the same thing. But a child that's grown up in a home. Yes. Where it's perfectly normal. And in some days, um, uh, I'd say in the last 10, 15 years, I've been hearing horrific stories where parents get high with their kids. Oh, yeah. So if you think that's normal, you're not going to stop. You know, and I wish your cousin, you know, the best in realizing it, but it's going to take a, a a break in the chain, as they say. Yes, yes, breaking the chain, breaking the cycle, doing something different than what's just been happening and happening over generations. Uh, but yeah, that's the that's the closest I got to it. Just going to my grandparents over the summers or winter breaks, and seeing my uncles and aunts. Um, back in my own home with my mom, just living with my mom, single parent. I didn't see it. She. No, she just smoked cigarettes. So I felt lucky in that regard that I didn't have to see uh, addiction on a daily basis or at least severe addiction like like that. But there's other things that can be passed down, though, also that's not just addiction, right? Correct. Yeah. I totally agree. Let's switch over to you. What's your earliest memories of alcohol and drugs as it relates to family like seeing it in the family um i think i was a good five or six years old when i really realized it um me and my sisters um we would um pick up after my mom's parties and stuff like that and we were happy that they had alcohol everybody was happy we have a large family um they got together every Sunday to eat at my grandmother's. Yeah. They got together. They made up holidays. Okay, so that when I early when I was young, that was the one thing that I knew I wanted to do is drink and party and party because that's what my family did. All right. So um, in early memories, I was like not thinking I can't wait, but I knew that that was a good thing because yeah. everybody got happy. Yes. Even uh, artificially so, but we didn't know the art. It was artificial. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so artificial back then, yes. I, but I did realize whatever comes in those bottles made my mother and my uncles and my aunts very happy. Right. And that's got to be, yeah, that's got to be a real strong, powerful connection for a kid to make, to see that over and over and over and over, like that bottle, that bottle means something. Um they made up parties. They always had parties. Yeah. And um, the older I got, the you know, the more that we cleaned up after them, we'd mix drinks together that were left over and we'd drink them. Right. And we felt, we would sit there and we're like, we're finally doing it. We're doing what they're doing. And it was, um, it's horrifying now, but it was amazing then that we thought we were doing a good thing. Right. Um, so... How uh, were family members of yours treated or looked at? The ones who used or drank heavily, like, well, it might have been all, a lot of, a majority of your family members, but was that, they're that one that just like always, 
was effing up or, or yeah, there's there's there there's I think there's always that one and <laughs> yeah. um my uncle Bertram stands out because um he went as a student ambassador from uh, University of San Jose to um Africa for two years. He's smart. Uh, he had he was made all kinds of art that he sold. But when he drank, yeah, he was ridiculous. Um, there's times my aunts go, if he's gonna be there, I'm not coming, because he just gets you know belligerent. Right. And um, he it made me feel bad for him. And I always did still didn't think he was a problem. I just felt like. He drank too much that he doesn't know when to stop. Yeah. Because everybody else is still happy. And besides my Aunt Loretta, every there is 11 kids in my mom's family. And all of them drank. Right. You know, my grandfather would drink um, drambouille after dinners, you know, but um, he didn't drink. He wasn't a daily drinker. So it was just this one uncle who just... Just did a little bit more than everybody else. I, I, that's what, when, especially when I was about fourteen, I couldn't figure out if Uncle Bertram just drank a little bit more than everybody did, yeah. and that's what made him that way. Or maybe he needed a different alcohol. I oh. thought of that. You know, <laughs> you were really trying to like figure it out for him. Yeah, like, because you know, it, he upset the family. Yeah, you're like he is on some other. Shit. I mean, there were family occasions and stuff that he wasn't invited to. And he'd call, he goes, Denise, why didn't you call and tell me that this was going on? I said, I don't know. And my younger sister, she, we used to call her Truth. She told the truth about everything. Yeah. She goes, Grandpa didn't want you there. Hmm. And so I felt sad for him. So he kind of became my favorite. And I think until I was like 16, I was determined. I bought him bottles of alcohol when I was oh 16 God. through 18, trying to find something that he could drink yeah. and be a regular person. But the way alcohol affected him, that was never going to happen. It's crazy. So he was kind of like outcast. Kind yeah, of black it, from, you know, from a super close family, you know, it's like my grandmother, like, events at the house, she's all, my son is coming. But everybody was like, okay, don't drink. And then um, we start, they started bringing um, ice chests. Yeah. with their own beers in it and stuff. And then they'd count them and tell him he'd have to bring his own. And um, he he was doing good until hard alcohol. Yeah. Um, when he came back from Africa, hard alcohol was his thing. And he scared me when he drank that. He became not just falling down and um, a drunk that, you know, got on everybody's nerves. He became scary. Yeah, like dangerous. Yeah. Were there any specific family members that you looked up to or idolized that were maybe, well, kind of like you just mentioned, uh, doing too much or outcast or black sheep or, or, or just, just very friendly with alcohol and drugs? Is there anyone that you've like really looked up to? Um, I looked up to all of my uncles. My other three uncles were successful and, um, they, I guess you would say, maintained um, their addiction and their drinking. And I looked up to them because, wow, it was like selling drugs gets you a whole bunch of money. Yeah. You know, so I looked up to them, but I think I looked up to Bertram the most because I felt like 
he was a cat, an outcast. Yeah, underdog. Yeah, and I wanted to help him because I loved him. Right. You know? That was crazy. I remember my mom asking me when I was in grade school who my favorite uncle was, or I think I maybe just told her uh, who my favorite uncle was. And then she made sure to be like, okay, well, just don't drink like him or something to that effect, you know? Just yes. don't. You can be want to be like your uncle and, and love your uncle and all that good stuff, but don't pick up all these habits. But I really, I thought he was the coolest. I still think he's one of the coolest people on earth. Uh, that just happened to have a drinking problem. Yes. Yeah, and other mental health issues on top of that. Uh, I don't want to get too broad in this one episode, but there's just like, we're focusing on addiction and alcoholism right now, but there's also a whole other disarray of things that are layered on top of the addiction piece that are intersecting with the addiction piece, race, um, uh, 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 socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, poverty, mental, other mental health issues. My uncle that I was just talking about, he also had bipolar, diagnosed with bipolar and schizophrenia on top of addiction. So it was just, we don't have enough time in the episode, but I just want to throw that out there that there's a whole lot more factors. Yes. I believe mental health is a lot of the, the the factor and, um, we're going to go back to what the program's about, but I definitely believe mental health is a lot of it. And I don't want to throw your exact age on blast, but just to give the viewers some idea of when we're talking about your uncle and your family, like we're talking back decades. Yes. Decades where it wasn't as not racist. <laughs> exactly. I was born in 1955. Thank so you. So I'm 65. So we're talking, my uncles were grown and grown men. And um, of course, if my family was drinking, they were over 21. And so if I'm around seven or eight, when I start seeing these things, mm-hmm. that was a generation that didn't show a lot of, there wasn't a lot of prejudice. There wasn't... Um, you said born in 55. It wouldn't be another whole decade till like Martin Luther King came out with the civil rights movement yes, and stuff like that. I was lucky to have met him and that was definitely around that time. Yeah. So just a lot of, again, a lot of factors at play uh, with the intergenerational trauma aspect. Just a lot of, I don't know, pain, um, a lot of unworked through <laughs> stuff that just got passed down and passed down. Uh, yes, I believe um, because of the fact that I thought alcohol was cool um, and the result of my own alcoholism has caused my children, um, my children will never drink. My grandchildren will never drink or do drugs either. Because of what they've seen from me hmm. and their mom, it's just something I knew that they were never going to grow up and do. They're the ones that broke the chain. That's good. That's and good. Um, you know, they're they're all in college. They're all work orientated. You know, and it's amazing. Now my whole family's that way and has been for quite some years. But it's like, nope, they don't want to smoke. They don't want to drink. Yeah, and. Um, that's good. I'm sorry that my disease scared them into that choice. Yeah, it was probably a long time coming. Yeah. Like like you said with your other Uncle Birch and 
Yeah, yeah. Okay. so I didn't even re- recognize that I had a problem because I thought it was normal too mm-hmm. until I was 64. I never even tried to get sober until I was 64. Right. So it's like anybody can do it at any age, but I didn't realize it was a problem. So I I didn't realize like my grandkids and kids had grown up to a point where they knew the difference. Yeah. And um, I wasn't fooling them anymore. While you're on that, is there, or could you list some like maybe some norms or some normal some normal behaviors used in your family back then when you were a child that maybe wouldn't be okay now? Um, like what I started off with when I was saying I was first around alcohol, having parties with young kids. Yes. Um, and, you know, having it where glasses are left on the table overnight. Um, and that would be child abuse today. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, definitely. And, and you could have um, your children even possibly taken away right. or where the, the state watches you. Um, another thing um, I wouldn't do is take my kids to any babysitter because I want to go somewhere. Hmm. Um, I think um, if I had my kid today, it would have to be a family member or somebody I know. Yeah. Um, but just anybody on the block was cool because they knew them. But us kids didn't always feel comfortable going there. Right. So there's, that's something definitely I wouldn't do today. And um, I really believe that um, all alcohol and drugs that I've seen and it being, nor- being made to be normal to me, I think that today I wouldn't talk about it or try to get my kids or grandkids not to do it or my great-grandchild that's coming. Mm-hmm. I would just change my thought of thinking because they don't think that way. They've broken the chain. They don't think that way. So I think that today I would definitely do that different. And the other thing that really used to, um, I thought was normal, which is it, is... Um, Adults smoking marijuana in the car while you're in the car. Hmm. Um, they, you know, my uncles never really thought it was a bad thing. Yeah. And I never felt like I got high or thought it was a bad thing. But Oh, like smoking while you were in the car. Yeah. Okay. And so it's like, um, today, today that's something that's just definitely not a norm. You know, it's a lot of things um, that I even did with my own children. Um, are things I wouldn't do today because I just, and it wasn't, I didn't have the knowledge. I made a selfish decision to do it anyway. I haven't had any experience personally with Al-Anon. Like I said, I really want to go to a meeting. It's been on my to-do list for a while now. Have you had any experience with Al-Anon? Yes. I, like I said earlier, I went to a few meetings, um, while I was able to get out to meetings. Um, what I like about Al-Anon, like I said, it helps me as an addict see where the addiction comes from. It lets me see, especially they deal with generational things mm. um, in Al-Anon. And basically they help you see that it, you know, it may even skip a generation, but you know, or you may be in the next generation, but you were one that didn't drink, yeah. you know, and there's a lot of people I've seen there to help their sisters, their mothers, their brothers, and um, they go there a lot um, to get information on how to help them. Yes, I think they have steps too. Yes, they yes they, they do. They have, they have a step, step book and what you use, yeah. and that's for your own self healing. 
Right. And um, they also offer the seeking safety class. And it's not for people that are being abused. It's showing you how to deal with the addict that you live with or the alcoholic and not allowing them to abuse you with their words Ooh, and different things because it affects the whole family the, the big time. And so um, I like hearing the stories that they share. Yeah. You know, um, there's so many frustrated people out there and so many people out there that are loved by so many people and they just don't know that they're fighting for them. Yeah. You know, that's Al-Anon. It's about fighting for families. Yeah. AA is about fighting for yourself. There you go. Boom. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. Okay. Um, yeah. Lastly, before we take our last break and start wrapping up, uh, that was one of the main things I remember from the Knowles hearing them say is um, addiction is a family disease and say what you want on whether you're, you really, if you think it's a disease or not, you can't, you can't discount the fact that this thing affects so many people in one person's life. Um, especially if you live with that person that is struggling with this um, Oh my God, it could just take down a whole damn house. It, it, it could take down a family structure. It could take down a financial structure. Yeah. And it could actually, I believe a lot of the spouses that um, I've communicated with, they feel like they're losing their mind, that there is no hope. But these women are strong. I have never seen, you know, I go, well, you know, you've done all you can do. And uh, Carolyn, uh, this one lady that I... Um, text with back and forth from, from the meeting she says I can't give up on him yeah. because you know I, I just you know I just have to keep being there and she goes I'm doing it for my children so I can explain to my children what's going on um, they're not old enough to go to Alateen because they do have that but they're not old enough for that but she says I'm getting all the knowledge that they give me mm-hmm. and giving it to my kids so they don't feel hurt when they're yelled at. They don't feel right. these things. Going back to the her giving her kids all that knowledge so they don't feel a certain way when she might act a certain way. Um, also so that they can eventually grow up to break or stop that cycle. Yes. To just like say, oh, I know what this is. Like when they're adults. Oh, I know what this is and I'm not. I, and now I know how to deal with this in a healthy way. That's why Al-Anon Teen is so strong. Yeah. Um, they're, these kids are like their own foundation. They found each other and um, just kind of like addicts do. There's somebody like me and they don't, they want to stop their father or mother or cousin and they don't know how to either, but they, before they get 18, 21, where they're able to do things like that, before their minds are more developed, they're catching them at 13, I believe it's 13 to 18 that you can go to Alatine. And um, it's it's a perfect age to help them break that cycle. Right. You know, I'm mom's taking us here, so we don't have to be like dad. Yeah. You know? When we come back, we are going to do a quick Q&A, uh, hit some gratitude, and wrap it on out. Hey, it's your host, Zoe, again. If you know someone that's struggling with substance abuse disorder and or alcoholism and you need help, you need answers on how to figure things out, break codependency ties, etc., please check out Al-Anon 
Alanon, Alanon, A-L-N-O-N. They also have a group for teens. So if you know someone uh, that's under 18 that is dealing with an addict in the home or something like that, and they might need help, they might need answers, please check out Alanon. Thanks. All right, and we're back for the last uh, act of our episode today. So, uh, Q&A, I only have one, but it asks, how would each of you say that you're breaking the cycle in your own family patterns today? You want to go first? How would each of you say you're breaking the cycle in your own family? I think first... um Mine just by seeking help. Nobody in my family has ever seeked help. Oh, you took mine. (laughs) (laughs) For their alcoholism or their drug problem. So, yes, seeking help. And um, I don't know how to put it. There's a word I'm looking for. Seeking help, taking the help, actually accepting the help. Yes, there you go. Um, So you have to seek the help. You have to learn to accept help. And you've got to make decisions that make you different. Okay, you've got to make new decisions. You have to find spirituality in your life in order to have help making these decisions. And um, I, I believe that I broke that cycle when I went to a rehab. And um, by going to a program, staying on the program, um, nothing, no one in my family has ever done that. Yeah. Um, they are proud of me. Um, some of them are still like, I don't know why you feel you had to go. You didn't drink that much to me. Well, so, yeah. yeah. So, it's like, I'm sorry. I see something wrong in the way that you think. I'm trying to break a cycle. Um, like I said, my kids and my grandkids already have. And um, I believe that I want to be a good great-grandmother. And I think I have to break the cycle of the way I think and what's going on. Because I need to do something in someone else's life. Right. Love it. So you took my first one. Yes. Um, <laughs> actually looking for help. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least in my in immediate family. No, I don't I don't know of anybody else that went to an actual rehab or inpatient rehab or even outpatient. I don't know of them. They might be there. You know, I got family everywhere. But the ones at least in the Bay Area, I think I'm the first. And as far as uncles and aunts. And then, like you said, actually accepting the help. It's one thing to look for it, do some Google searches. It's another to actually let go of the steering wheel and follow directions mm-hmm. <laughs> from, you know, complete strangers at times. Uh, breaking the cycle. So, yeah, look for help, accepted the help. And I want to do one more um, God, they kind of all mirror yours just by doing things different. Um, as much as I love and idolize my uncles and aunts, a lot of them, the majority of them who had drug and alcohol issues and aren't here anymore. Um, I now know that I cannot follow their foot footsteps exactly because if I do, I'm going to die just like they did. Um, so I'm like tasking myself with, ooh, how do I still honor their memory and, and, and have them with me? Uh, 
you know, because they're all very outgoing and I'm really not. So I'm like, how do I have that little bit of spunk in me um, without having to resort to a freaking tall can? It, I'm, I, that's like my new challenge, honoring their memory, but also forging a whole new path that hasn't been done before. Well, you can honor their memory best, I think, is by staying sober, huh. doing something that they couldn't do. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't have the power or the knowledge or the help to do it. Yeah. And I think with you doing all those things, that's the best honoring of them that you could do. Okay, that was our Q&A segment. And now let's move on to gratitude as we... Uh, as we Was there anything, lastly, that you wanted to speak on before we move on to gratitude? Um, no, I think that um, you were, we both feel a lot about the this, this subject the same. Yes. We both had, had a, a lot of same feelings, and I, I hope, hopefully they understand what we're trying to portray, and maybe people will look at their lives and see if there's anything that's consistent like a chain. Mm-hmm. That they could change and improve on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Gratitude. Uh, I'll take it first. One thing I'm gratitude. One thing I'm grateful for today. Uh, hmm. And you wanted to be first. <laughs> I know. I know. That's why I don't. I'm, I've been asking you to go first this whole episode. And That's you're afraid I'm, like, I'm going to say what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't even. I've been saying the same. Damn near the same thing for the last. See the whole season. Um. One thing I am grateful for today, life. All right. <laughs> Just life, being alive, being alive, uh, the life that I have right now, though not perfect, though not maybe exactly where I want to be, uh, I'm damn grateful that I at least have it to try. That's why. Very good. Miss D, what's one thing you're grateful for? And one thing I'm grateful for is... Actually, AA, because it saved my life. Mm -hmm. I found spirituality. I found joy. Um, Watching the eighth step promises, the ninth step promises just come true for you. Yeah. Um, I was in a a place where I didn't see any of that coming true. And if it hadn't have been for AA, it's not just for my sobriety. Mm -hmm. It's the program makes me, I feel like I have a tribe of people to help me. And if they don't see you for a minute, they'll call you and ask you if you're okay. Somebody cares about what you're doing. So that's what I'm grateful for um, because um, they're the best. You know, if you want to seek help, it's the best place to go. There you go. And that wraps up our episode number five on growing up in dysfunction. And Al-Anon, Miss D, thank you so much. You're welcome. Yay! And we're out. See you guys next week. Two weeks. See you guys in two weeks. And that was our episode number five with the lovely Miss D on growing up in dysfunction and Al-Anon. I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you got something from it. Hope you related to it at least on some level. And more than anything, I hope you join us in two weeks for episode six where uh, I will be joined by one of my good friends that I haven't seen in forever where we will discuss sex and sexuality and recovery so bring your popcorn bring your crystals and meet us there in two weeks all right have a lovely 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 week i will see you guys latest.
Peace.